I'm your host, Isabel Siderni, and this is Frame by Frame, a podcast introduction to the most influential and respected film professionals working in New York today, talking about their process and craft in creating films that continue to make New York an essential center of the global film industry. In Frame by Frame's episode five, Post Factory founder and filmmaker Alex Halpern and picture editor Angelo Correo talk about their process of editing Alex's 2002 feature documentary, Nine Good Teeth, and the evolution of New York's independent film community across two generations. Before 9-11, Post Factory was like going like gangbusters. Angelo and I were able to lock ourselves in an editing room. We had Joel and Ethan in one room. We had Al Pacino in another room with Susie Almiger, right? We had Bruce Springsteen with our friend Tom Zimney in another room. I mean, but nobody knew it because we were in this shitty loft on the end of the West Village. You'd come up, you'd think you were going to some kind of like garbagey, like industrial building. And then you come into this little sort of gem. There was all this stuff happening that made people think like, I'm just going to create and and they found an audience. Frame by Frame is brought to you in partnership with Motion Picture Editors Guild and Post New York Alliance, because it's how you finish that counts. Our website is postnewyork.org and we can be found on Twitter at at PostNY. Our host for today's session is Post Factory. Alex and Angela began talking about how they first met in developing Alex's documentary film project, Nine Good Teeth. It was around the same time, 1996, that Post Factory began to build its reputation for supporting some of New York's most important independent filmmakers. I think it was like summer 2000 that David Leonard introduced us. David Leonard is a friend of ours who would be the next generation of editors, right? Who followed, who worked for Angelo as an assistant, but also worked in Thelma's editing room, worked for Jerry Peroni. That's Alex Halpern, filmmaker and founder of Post Factory a post-production facility based in Tribeca that he founded in 1996 with Alex Winter and Jim O'Hagan. I started Post Factory quite by accident. I'm mean, an unintentional tourist in the post-production business. I bought an Avid to edit the film Nine Good Teeth. My intention was to edit it on my own. I started shooting late 95, early 1996, and I was accumulating footage. And in the summer, late summer 96, I bought an Avid and my entire business plan was to edit for a year and either sell the film or the Avid, or both hopefully, after a year of editing and start my next film. That was 1996 and something like 150 Avids ago and like seven facilities ago. And I, at the time I was an independent filmmaker directing music videos and you know whatever I could get people to pay me to direct, which was somewhat infrequent, but definitely enough that I was sort of making a living. I think I was making like, my best year as a director, I was making like 30 or $40,000 a year and I was directing baby bands. I was the video director that when the record company had to release a band, they weren't quite sure if the band was gonna break and they wanted to spend five or 10 or maybe, you know, if we got $15,000, that was a lot for the video, for the whole thing, right? And that's when you were shooting on film. So it was just like still kind of expensive in those days. You know, I had been editing all my own stuff, and I, I came out of a, a feeling of being an editor-director. So from 96 to 2000, when Angela and I met, I had my first son, and then I had my second son, and I kind of discovered that I could rent the Avid out on the side, 
Um, and then the plan shifted to rent the Avid out during the day and edit at night. And I thought I could still kind of do what I did when I was in college, like just power through it, work 18-hour days. And my, our friend Tom Zimney, who was my first real client, would come in in the morning and he would find me asleep on the keyboard. And he would like, come on, it's my turn. And finally I had to get my own keyboard because Tom didn't want to like edit on the keyboard that I had been sleeping on. So I'd get my own. And even I was like $100 for an Avid keyboard, you know? Like, okay, I guess I'll get another keyboard but um by the time angela and i met i was pretty firmly into the post-production business at that time although it was a completely different business than than this post factory and it, it was an opportunity to meet people and kind of bulk up the phone book the rolodex in a way that wasn't happening for me earlier as an independent filmmaker it was like all of a sudden my process was somehow accelerating and i was getting to work with the cohen brothers and with with uh, Bill Pankow, who was one of the editors on Scarface. And the economics of the business were so different that at that time, you could own f like three or four or six Avids and have a very small space and still be making quite a nice living. And by the time Angelo got there, I had graduated also into like post-supervising on the side. So I was doing all these different jobs. I was doing everything but editing my film. And I was kind of like occasionally editing and like cutting a trailer. And then I met this guy, David Leonard, who was editing one of the, he was a client, editing one of the films. And I, you know, I was telling him about my film and I was trying to find an editor. And he's like, oh, you should meet my friend, Angelo Correo. I said, Angelo Correo? He said, you know, he cut that movie, Let's Get Lost. I, Let's Get Lost. That was like a movie that changed my life, right? When I, 10 years before, I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I want to work with. And he was telling me about your background, Sicilian, Sicilian-American. And he, like, he leads me through this whole thing. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, Angelo, he's totally perfect. Will you introduce me to him? And I think, was he working with you or just finished working no, with you? I finished working. Just finished working with right. you on something for Bruce, right? right. Not well, it was more uh, for Tim Burton, actually, oh, if fine. I remember correctly. Was it the uh, unfinished, unfinished uh, uh, Robert Vin Mitchum doc? No, it was the unfinished uh, Vincent Price doc. Oh, uh, unfinished Vincent Price doc. Uh, so, 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 so I said to David, okay, well, would you introduce me to Angelo? He said, yeah, I'll introduce you. I'm like, do you think he might work with me? Do you think he might do my family? He'll never do it. That's what David said. He'll never do it. Yep. You can't afford him. He's not available and he'll never do it. And I was like, okay, just please introduce me anyways and then that's when we met so it was really david was the conduit for bringing us together right absolutely am i remembering it the right way you jumped absolutely because david told me and we, uh, we talked about it once before that you know he said nah he'd never do it just like that and it took you by surprise i mean he can't even you know say hello to me or meet me or you know have sicilian backgrounds how about this yeah so, and i was still pretty starstruck at that time i mean that was like I was still a baby in the business. So the fact that I was friends with the Cohen brothers and sort of knew some other important filmmakers hadn't done anything to diminish my starstruckness of you or other important editors. I mean, just as an aside, when we first met Bill Pankow, he had been, I guess it had been a few years since he cut uh, Scarface, but Jim O'Hagan, my partner who passed away, and I, Heard about Bill, and Bill was coming to cut some movie for Miramax. I can't remember what it was. It might have been Drumline. And like we heard Bill never came downtown, never left Sound One, which was the place in Midtown, right? And we were terrified of Bill Pankow. Like, he cuts for De Palma. He's so important. Like, the first day Bill got there, Jim and I were, like, almost shaking in our shoes. And then and Bill was the nicest guy ever. It was like, you know. 
and the business had changed at that point because of uh, uh, digital editing and the whole situation of uh, not necessarily needing to be in a building which housed a sound facility or a lab, which were, you know, this was almost a change for years. So it was a big change. And people guys. started coming downtown, opening up post-production facilities or rooms or renting rooms down here because of the it was less expensive than Midtown, but there's a whole shift. Well, we don't need to be in the same building as Technicolor anymore. We don't need to be at Magno. We don't need to be at Duart Labs. We could be anywhere with these machines and edit our films. That's picture editor Angelo Correo, who began as an assistant editor working with picture editor Dee Dee Allen on such films as Sidney Lumet's Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon and Warren Beatty's Reds, as well as working with other editors for directors Mike Nichols, Alan Pakula, and Arthur Penn. As a picture editor in his own right, Angelo's best known for his work on Bruce Weber's documentary Let's Get Lost about jazz trumpeter Chet Baker and the documentary Dream of Life about punk rock musician, poet, and author Patti Smith. In a way, as you were saying this, I just thought of this for the first time. Avid was really like the uber of, of the post-production business in the sense that it really like disrupted the business. And you had a whole generation of editors, Angelo's generation, and even David's generation, but less so for the next generation coming. So Angelo's generation and all the people before, which were trained in this film style of editing on cams or movieolas and negative cutting and all this stuff. And now you had this new flock of young Turks, guys like me who were like, hey, we can do single frame edits in this computer box, you know? And, you know, I'd been already cutting for years on an Avid Music videos. And you could understand that it was also sort of an intimidating transition for you guys. For a lot of us. Right? I mean, of course, there were... We might have been starstruck, but you guys were like, what's this technology? And, and there were two different types of editors. The ones who were technically interested and always were up to date. And they took to it very easily. And then there were people like myself who could care less about, I mean film technology, making opticals, you know, working on film. That was fine. As soon as you get into the area of computers, I had absolutely no interest in it. I had no experience in it. But that didn't last long because the business was changing. We're talking about the early 90s. I had already gone to move my whole family to L.A. following many, many other New York editors because we had various strikes, uh, actor strike, producer strike, you name it. New York was so Uh, messed up. Really bad in the late 80s that we were looking for these films that we were, you know, that were decent, good, solid films and they weren't to be had. So everybody started to go to LA. By the time I got to LA, this whole transition, and there were various models of this digital or multi-track editing that preceded Avid and Final Cut Pro, but that whole business was changing. So all of a sudden I go out there and the only jobs I could find were the ones that were on this new machine, whichever type it was. Whether it might have been an Avid or it might have been a Lightworks or there was a thing for a little while called an Edit Droid. At the end of the day, there was for a second, there was this thing called Media Composer 100. But at the end of the day, like Avid kind of won out. Avid has become to editing what Aeroflex is to cameras. Really. So, and, you, and for those of us who had no experience, we didn't have a computer, we were thrown into these situations like, well, I need a paycheck. Right. I can't turn down this job or I can't come across as someone who is not technically proficient. 
And so we would say, we could do it, we could do it. Especially if you found the right director and the right project, you were willing to go that extra mile saying, I got a shot at this, let me convince him that I'm the right person for the job. But what would happen is that they would just throw you into a, a room at the lab or at some nondescript building and say, we got some footage for you and you can practice on that for a couple of hours and then we have to kick you out. So that happened like on a Friday, I had a couple of hours I had an assistant who was very smart and sort of computer uh, savvy, but not. And we spent a couple of hours like trying to figure this all out. Monday morning, that footage came in from the shoot. <laughs> you know, it was, it and, was, and that's the way it started. And you, and you just had to take those jobs because pretty much that was it. People didn't have a choice. If you didn't jump into the deep end, you were going to be out. And there were some editors like, the ones that you apprenticed with, the older ones. Well, I guess Dee Dee kept going, right? She, she kept on going with, with film, but then she switched over too. Well, yeah, the were, only one was really uh, Spielberg's. Well, I just. Michael Kahn. Who, yeah, but Michael switched in the last five years. Switched. I'm not sure whether he switched back, but he switched. No, no, he didn't. I just, because I, I just, I, I, I just met someone who would know. Right. I don't want to, I don't want to mean a name dropper, right? right? right, right. But I, I heard, and I met Michael a few years ago with Pietro, and I just, heard that, yeah, they're totally on habit. Right. It, it, yeah. it got to a point where some of these people just like the thing about going shooting digitally or on film, this whole, you know, uh, uh, clash between certain generational things where I won't shoot my f film on digital. It has to be on film. The same thing with the editing machines. I, I want to cut on film. I don't want to work on one of those machines. I'm much more comfortable. And, I've, and, and many of them, like Michael Kahn would say, I'm just as fast as anybody on one of those computer machines. Well, and they were. And they were. by the way, Joel and Ethan, Joel and Ethan didn't make the switch till, I mean, I guess they made the switch, I don't know, in the last 10 years, but in the early days of Post Factory, when they were a, a first client, we were setting up film rooms for them. I mean, I have their chem downstairs. I have two of their cams, as a matter of fact, and that was, you know, that was normal. It's like you had to have a cam, you had to have some Avids, and like, you know, in fact, I was the guy who, who showed Ethan, you know, okay, here's how, here's how the Avid works, and, but they still won't use an Avid. It's a running argument that Ethan and I have. No, no, they're on Premiere. They went to Final Cut, then they went to Premiere, you but know. That was a, actually the Steenbeck thing, which was a, a German editing, uh, machine which was on a on a, we call a flatbed which is like a table and the rolls of film would be put on the various cores that would be able to run the film from one side to another backwards and forwards and so that was it took a few of us a little bit to get used to that it was a much bigger leap to avid and other because you we were still handling film you were putting the rolls on you were cutting on the you started on a movie Ola? Yeah, started on a movie. Oh, I, see. I never so, worked on a movie. Oh, I, yeah. I trained on a flatbed, right. and I was pretty proficient, but I never started so on a movie. That, so that was the mini step, though. It was nothing like the right. total transition into digital. Who is your friend whose dad used to cut for, uh, uh, you know, Artie Schmidt? Artie Schmidt's dad cut for what's his face? Uh, Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder, right? Yeah, yeah. The editing room is. It's like, a, it's like a doctor's office, or really like even oh, like yeah. a therapist's office. So there's some stuff that just never leaves the room. And that's the bond between editor and director, or editor and you know, co-editor. This is, you have to, and this, go ahead. And the, no, and that's the, one of the important things that we sort of don't talk about. We get into the mechanics of editing and 
objectivity and subjectivity and your own personal sensibility. But it all starts with someone making a phone call trying to hire you or have heard of you. And then you try to, again, find a, a collaborator who you're simpatico with. There, there's something there that connects you. Of course, in many projects, if especially if they're features, you read the script. So you have to you know, really um, analyze the script and prepare yourself to have this interview if this is a first time uh, uh, job with this particular director. And you really, I've seen that the more simpatico, the more I have this connection with this person, not necessarily that we agree on everything, but there's something there. And then the second part is that there's a subject that speaks to you, the film itself, or what they're trying to do, speaks to you in a certain kind of way that you understand on, let's say, on a very, very deep level. You know, there are people who could care less about cutting a baseball film or whatever. But, you know, I'm making that an easy point. But something that really speaks to you in that story besides working with a terrific partner. And then the third thing would be, what do you see yourself being inspired by where you can bring something to this project that's really extra special? Why should he hire you, you know, uh, you know, because 10 people can do the same job just as well. But sometimes someone sees something in you at that interview or while you're working that says, oh, this guy understands it or what I'm trying to do uh, or something that I'm not even aware of at a level which can be a great contribution to the project. I want to interject because I think it's a very interesting point, that first interview. And I remember when you and I got together the first time and I think ours was somewhat atypical because first of all I was afraid that you weren't going to take the job so I was kind of wanting to sell myself to Angelo right which is not usually the case usually it's the other way around the editors are like actors they're kind of in a way it's a kind of audition um, and I had met um, other editors I had tried to work with other editors I had like assistant editors I worked with young younger people but you know it took me that first four years really of like just accumulating footage to be willing to even let go of the idea of like, I'm going to edit this myself. Because also at that time in independent filmmaking in New York, you had this idea of like, what do I need to do to kind of uplift my own career? So I was both, it was for me, it was a duality. I was intimidated. I was excited. I wanted to like convince this guy, but I wasn't really sure that I wanted anybody. I'm not sure about the intimidation part. No, no, I, I won't. I, you don't, I, you, I, you don't I, I wouldn't be privy to that. No. Because it it's your own internal sure. dialogue. I'm this young filmmaker. We met when I was, what, like 35? So how old were you? 55? Could be, yes. 55? Your credits were, besides Let's Get Lost, Reds, Dog Day Afternoon. I mean, Angelo has worked with and worked on the best movies, the seminal, game-changing movies. It literally, like, were the beginning or sort of the, the early stages of changes in in, in film movements here, especially stuff that was happening on the East Coast. So I'm thinking like, I'm thinking I'm gonna, I'm getting together with this guy who's worked with like Sidney Lumet, Warren Beatty, uh, who, who else? Arthur Penn. Yeah. Arthur Penn, right? Like all these, the, 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 the towering figures of American cinema, that the, the, the figures Mike that Nichols. I, right, Mike Nichols, people that were my heroes and that I had studied. And I'm thinking if I hire him to come and work with me on my very personal small film, what if he's just, kind of this guy that's going to come in and tell you like well here's how it is kid right like this is how it's if you want me this and and that was a real fear and it took me i i understood that you were a kind sort of thoughtful deep person when we first met 
But it took at least like six or eight weeks of us working together side by side before I felt like I could loosen up and kind of just be. And, and also the film was, um, I had like, I don't know, a hundred hours of like interviews and footage and it's all about my family and this very personal stuff. So you're kind of inviting somebody to kind of really get under your skin and not only under your skin, but under the skin of all the people that make up who you are. So that was, uh, it was intimidating for me. You know, it was, there was no, I, I didn't have any distance from the subject, and, but the fact that we came from a very culturally similar background, and very quickly I learned that Angela was um, very open and enjoyed experimenting. And that's what you talk about when you talk about let's get lost. That Angela didn't want to fit into any kind of rules of like, okay, here's how a film has to be. And we were really, we were really partners and we really, in a way, wrote the film. When you're making a documentary film, there is no script. I mean, I had this giant board of index cards, right? And I plotted out the movie and I had an idea, which wasn't really necessarily the, the three acts, but I had an idea of like, this is how, this is how the story flows linearly, right? And then we can break it up from here. And in like, then I had this great guy who was like, okay, well, let's try this. I've seen this. And it was like working with like somebody who knew how to cut great music videos or something. All of a sudden I was like, okay, perfect match, right? Yeah, and it was uh, also, you don't get there, you know, like finding each other. You're finding a person like me that could speak to, not, not only a cultural thing, I happen to be someone who was interested in film in a, in a kind of way where I was open to the broad nature of the art form. Not, right. not, I wasn't just interested in conventional, we shall call them conventional Hollywood scripting and production. Um, I come from a, a European background. I saw all the films from all the directors of every country. Fellini, De Sica, Renoir, Antonioni. I was also an appreciator of, d definitely, Hitchcock and Goddard. You know, so all but of also that- also theater and artwork. Yes. I talk about and this I, all the time. Angelo- In fact, you know, I was a, okay, backtrack. A true Renaissance artist. I'm not sure about the Renaissance part, but- I, Renaissance <laughs> in the sense that you, you know, I was open to a lot of stuff. You were open to so many things. And then by the, I, I think I'm the first generation, or really like the next generation of filmmakers after me, where it's like, where you're not coming at it with that approach, where you have kids, and especially now, kids like coming at it from a much more technical, here's how the machine works, and like, here's how two images go together, but it kind of feels right, but they don't even understand, oh, that happened in, uh, you know, that happened in uh, The Duelist, or that happened in, uh, you know, touch of evil 60 years before, you know. And all of that was, you know, you know, fermenting and happening during the 50s and the 60s. And my generation was the beneficiary of those kinds of foreign right. film movements, with contrast to American filmmaking. I'm not saying one is better than the other in a generalized kind of way, but there was a much broader sense of what the medium could do, because all these people were experimenting after World War II and just prior to World War II. There was all these different kinds of movements that you know, were you know, opening the floodgates in various cinemas in each one of the foreign countries, and we would see all these different kinds of films. So we recognized right away, oh, that kind of standard American film is one way of approaching it, but this kind of film does it a different kind of way. Is that legitimate? Well, as decades evolve, we saw that, yes, the medium can really, you know, hold, accept, and propagate, you know, different points of view and different ways of dealing with 
a story or a character study or whatever that we thought was so limited if we only stayed in one particular you know, uh, perspective of, of just seeing American films. And we were the beneficiaries of that. And, and that was informing the various um, directors in New York who came out of, after the war, came into New York um, live television and came from theater and started making little films in New York, but they were so New York-centric that they didn't want to leave. So they were able to make their films in New York without having the studio look over them and, and dictate certain terms to them. Uh, they were adamant about not leaving. Arthur Penn, Sidney uh, Lumet, George Roy Hill, Mike Nichols, you know, all Martin of, Scorsese. I mean, yeah. all these guys, right? It's like so, there's, these whole, there's this whole school of New York filmmaking that happens between, you want to say, like, 68 and 1980, and that 12 years, and you're not even mentioning the experimental filmmakers. You're not even mentioning people like Warhol, Absolutely. right? Right. And then, and then you also had people like uh, Robert Frank, right? You had, like, what it was happening in New York, and, and I was waiting for you to say this, but I'm going to jump in and prompt I'll, it. I'll I think you were the beneficiary of also the changing pop art culture. I mean, New York in the 60s Absolutely. and 70s and, like, punk rock music, New York at that time it was like you were just jumping into this bubbling cauldron of creativity and politics and and dystopia, right? Because the city was kind of falling apart. There was all this stuff happening that made people think like, I'm just going to create, and and they found an audience, right? It's like it's like you know you had this whole slew of artists, some of whom now got left behind. People like my brother's generation, right? It's like you could still think of being an artist in New York in the '70s and think like. You didn't have to be an artist whose paintings were going to sell at Christie's for half a million dollars. You could be an artist and make a living and sell your shit in a gallery for a hundred bucks and pay your rent for two hundred. I mean, it's a whole different New York now, right? Well, you had the whole post-war transition of New York being the center of the art world. Uh, after World War II, uh, abstract expressionism and all the other movements in the art world were flourishing in New York, and they were opening all these different kinds of doors for people to look at art different kinds of ways. And that slowly but surely affected filmmaking for with sure. Warhol and, I mean, there were precedents to this. There were the surrealists from the 20s and the 30s. Stan Brackage and Maya Darren and all these people, but... There was Stan Brackage and Maya Darren and Andy Warhol and Ed Emshwiller and, and Tony Conrad, all these people that are experimenting, Tony Conrad was experimenting with just projecting white light on a wall. What about that guy who hypnotically in the Chelsea Hotel? Was his name Charles Smith? The guy who also yes, made the Harry music? Smith. Harry, Smith, Harry Smith, right? The Harry Smith archive, right? right. Or Henry Smith anthology. So, so it's like... And, so, and, so why wouldn't be we, because we were away from the studio, which was beginning to crumble anyway, why wouldn't we, being a different kind of cultural community here in New York, take advantage of all these movements. We were all talking to one another. We were going to these museums. We were same going to these shows. cocktail parties. Right. So, so all of a sudden, that lingua franca, if I may, uh, became something that you know was in the community. So for someone to say, oh, you can't do that, someone would look at you like, are you joking? I can do anything I want. And so that was the kind of thing that we were hoping that would happen to the film community here in the U.S., not just the Europeans experimenting with, with leisurely pacing and character, weird character studies that went nowhere. You know, all these things where 
in, in the film world and even in the theater world, really, building a film on just a, a three-act structure or whatever, and, and there's a beginning, middle, and end, and something happens at the end of act one, and this other thing happens in the middle of act two, and then at the end of act two, then when you have to trigger the beginning of act three, all these kinds of formulaic things, not that they went away, but they weren't adhered to with such conventionality. Well, that's where you and I, when we got together, and fast forward to 1999, 2000, and you kind of had some of what Angela was talking about in me coming out of the world of music videos where, you know, and I was a baby director. I didn't, you know, make any, I made a couple, I made one video that kind of changed, moved the needle a little bit, but you, you still had this kind of sense of like wanting to experiment the film that we were making, that I was making, was very early on in the personal documentary sort of genre. Now it's like everything's a personal documentary. You know, we, you know it's like the the line from Nine Good Teeth to the car, to Keeping Up with the Kardashians. It's not a that's not a big stretch, right? But nobody could have imagined Keeping Up with the Kardashians in 2000. If we sat in the editing room in 2000 and said, you know what, in 15 years we're going to be watching TV about some crazy chick just running around like doing her thing Angela would have you know we laughed at each other you know but we, so we get into the editing room and we have all this like simpatico and this art simpatico and like okay how do we do all that and still find an audience because that's the challenge right it's like you want to do all this you want to find this idea of self-expression and what Angela and I tried to work on and figure out was like structure and storytelling and subtext and layers of subtext and it's in in a way while we wanted to be all very experimental it was also a very conventional way of kind of trying to approach editing and storytelling because it was you know going all the way back to touch of evil and orson welles and in the same vein like the films that you remember now and you go back to over and over again whatever your taste in films are the reason you go back to them is not a singularity, but it's because of a multiplicity of, of, of elements, great storytelling, subtext, they're like puzzles. And you go back to them and you look at them over and over again. And, and I'll quote you, one of the things you told me, even in films no, that you... Still, I, I, sure, <laughs> it's still true. Even in films that you don't like, I was, I was bitching to you, because the, the year we were working together was the year Marty remade Cape Fear. Yeah. Right? And Cape Fear with Robert Mitchum is one of my all-time favorite films, or many people's all-time favorite films, right? And, you know, and I love Marty. You know, Marty, if you hear this, I, we all stand on your shoulders. You know, Italian-American. I wouldn't have made Nine Good Teeth if you hadn't made Italian-American. But, you know, I, I was not a big fan of Cape Fear. And Angel said to me, it doesn't matter. You have to go, and if you appreciate this director's work, this artist's work, you have to try and absorb the film as understanding their thought process, their creative thought process, and, and the, the, the structure of the film and how they're telling the story is a structure of how they're thinking. And they're, it's like, imagine like you could like take the brain, the skull cap off and look inside how the pictures move in their head. And that, I think, was something I was doing instinctually, but it totally changed my approach to writing and editing and even and, and watching and to try to understand. And I think the films that you go back to there's a, I will call it the director's voice. There's a very clear director's voice in the films that hold up over time. Like them or don't like them, you'll find a director's voice in there. And, the, and, the, and he's, if you listen carefully, you can hear the director telling you a story. You can even, when the director's a screenwriter, 
you can if you if you're observant, you can pick the character out in the film that is speaking with that director's voice. Films can sometimes they're not always, but they can sometimes be a kind of confessional, right? And that was something that then we tried to okay, like let's try this in Nine Good Teeth. What is it? How do we how do we take this idea? And that changed my approach and how we were working together because it gave me a kind of something that I could hang and try and get you to help me hang the story on, like how I saw this woman. What did this woman mean to me, right? But not only what she meant to me, what could she mean to others? And that's how we tried to find the audience. What we kept coming back to over and over again was, it's not about your grandmother, it's about a grandmother, right? It's, it's not just your view of Mary, but it's how other people see Mary. And I think one of the greatest victories for us was, I was in Mill Valley, this Asian American woman came up to me after the Q&A, and, and this was after a year of being on the film festival tour. I mean, I was just worn out, right? And uh, she said to me, oh my God, I, I love your film so much. She's just like my grandmother. And I just looked at this woman and I was just like, okay, like we did something, right? Like whatever it is, because her grandmother like, was not American. Her grandmother was an immigrant and like, but it's, it was, we had, I knew then that we had nailed that story, right? And, and I would, they would, always, they would always say, the Lindness test of a film is, would you get fan letters from Kansas? And I would get fan letters from Kansas. I just, you know, we lost out at the time to, I think, not having enough, not understanding what P&A was, you know, not understanding, you know, promotion and advertising dollars, not having the right distributor. It's like, you know, you can kill yourself, make a great movie and still have a really hard time finding an audience if you don't have great distribution and you don't have the great, you don't have that end of it. Well, vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, Nine Good Teeth, again, having seen, let's say, you saw Let's Get Lost, I was in that mode of wanting to experiment. It was actually the first, Let's Get Lost was the first documentary I'd ever done, which was very intimidating because not only was it the first doc, it was on 16 millimeter film. And it was with music and dialogue, and it was going to have sound effects. So these were multi-tracks on a flatbed. Steenbeck and Kim are the same kinds of machines. They're table machines. And uh, uh, I was intimidated, but I still had this idea that maybe what I was happening to me watching, uh, becoming disenchanted with the certain things that were happening in, in fiction, that you know, they weren't going deep enough. They weren't going, they were beginning to get formulaic or whatever. I found a certain kind of liberation when I first worked on this film, when I went for my interview, when I listened to the music, when I heard what the story was supposed to be about in a loose kind of way. Uh, I said, wait a minute, I haven't made my own film in about 15 years. I haven't been able, because I've been working on all these high profile films, I don't have time to go out on weekends, I'm working weekends, there are no weekends. And that I said, wait a minute, I'm gonna be like a partner in writing this thing in some kind of way. I can Absolutely. use those other muscles, I can use those other ideas. Some will work, some won't. I'll let my partner, my director, you know, talk to me, work with me and say, you know, I love that. Or eh, it's a nice idea, but it doesn't work. All that kind of stuff, but still trying to say, okay, I think I know what the formula of these kinds of pieces is supposed to be. Let me look at the material. And the material that Bruce Weber shot, who's the director of, of, of the film, but he was not the cinematographer, that was Jeff Price. 
but the style was what they, 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 they and the look they worked on together, was that the material was so different. It felt different. It was black and white. I think it was reversal, and it looked like jazz footage from the 50s, and it had this mood, and you listened to this guy's voice, and, you know, and then you saw him as this decrepit drug addict, and you tried to, and this beautiful angelic voice, and you tried to put all this stuff together, and you go, holy shit, this is great. You mean I can contribute a little bit more? And that was, that was the liberation. So by the time we go 10 or 20 years later, some of those things are no longer pushing the envelope kind of things. They already existed in, in documentary. They've been evolved. And again, I'm a huge fan of the Maisels. I'm a huge fan of, of Penny Baker. Uh, you know, Albert Maisels was a friend of mine. Their approach from the... And Fred Wiseman. I, mean, well, I don't know. I yeah, never met yeah, Wiseman. Right. But, and Wiseman, I think, is a little bit different. It's somewhat conventional, but a little bit different. Right. But they, they had a very... They had a style... A, you know, I, I will say a cinema verite, a sort of observational, distant, almost journalistic style. And it, that was what defined sort of documentaries up until, up until Let's Get Lost. I mean, I, I think, I think there was yeah, some I, you know, changes. I, Let's Get Lost stuck with inside the ground rules of documentary films, but it took an approach that certainly advanced the genre. And I think you can. You may not have rewritten the genre. Legitimized the the parts of the film that were more poetic or lyrical, made within what was supposed to be like a journalistic portrait of of this particular musician. It 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 somehow for a lot of people. I'm not saying all worked in a kind of way where I make the joke that after the film came out and won these awards, we went to the Oscars and all that kind of stuff, is my phone would be ringing off the hook. And I was very glad and very happy. Then I realized they were all documentary phone calls. And, and because they wanted a film, I, 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 I love that film, you know, and I have this project and I want something just like that. And I'm going to myself, you know, like, just like that? Am I going to repeat it for the same you thing? Can't. You can't. What did you shoot? What's the feeling? What's the sense of the character or the issue? I, I've never really done a lot of social or political issue documentaries. I don't go that route because maybe that's not a strong point for me. I'm more interested in character studies, et cetera. But, uh, you know, so w I would get these phone calls and I would say, well, wait a minute. We have to really, I have to really see what the subject is, see how you shot it. And then we can discuss if there's a way to push the envelope a little in certain areas that would give you what you want, what, what you're thinking of, that these other leaps where you want your film not to be like everybody else's, because it's a calling card. And so many more kids were coming out of film school and getting into documentaries because now it was legitimate. In the old days, if you got into documentary, that was it. Your career was, well, was over. Was, that's what I was trying the, to say. The whole you know, generational at, thing. At, at lunch, right? Yeah. Like, I came out of film school, it was like, New York was hopping with Jim Jarmusch and Joel and Ethan and Spike Lee. And, you know, then there were some, like, experimental East Village filmmakers. You know, I'm of that generation where if you didn't want to be in a rock band, you could become a filmmaker and kind of become, like, a rock star, right? Like, these guys, and, like, it was followed by Quentin Tarantino and some of these other guys, right? And uh, when we saw uh, Let's Get Lost, you had the feeling, like, wow, I can, like, also, like, I can take the sort of independent filmmaker approach to these sort of real life stories, right. which which the Maisels and Pennebaker 
weren't necessarily doing. I mean, it wasn't, you know, again, they had that kind of distance and, you know, they weren't, tr they weren't trying to get up close and personal the way Bruce did, the way I wanted to, the way other filmmakers wanted to. And I think that's what appealed to people. And you also had this the MTV generation and sort of maybe the beginning of this cult of celebrity, not that, uh, I mean, we've always had celebrity, but this is the beginning of kind of getting inside of it and, and looking at it and saying, well, here's the dirty part of celebrity. Like Chet's story was the sort of unfortunate, tragic, you know, like ugly part of celebrity and what happens, right? And I think, you know, all these things, as, as a viewer, you're kind of like, and how they're appealing to you, and you're saying, well, how do I put this into my film? How do I, how do I put this edginess into my film? You know, but it's interesting what Angela was saying, you know, by the time I got to him 11, 12 years later, I was probably another one of those in the long line of like, I want to make something different. Uh, let's get lost. Sort of rewrote the idea of the documentary about music. Before that, you had, I mean, certainly Marty had done some stuff with The Last Waltz, and you had like concert films, and you had. Um, they were more traditional. There, you had, Demi had done uh, the uh, Talking Heads one, right? And there's the famous Led Zeppelin. You had like traditional sort of like big band concert movies or like performance things, but you didn't really have this sort of like inside the creative process. And I think that's also what Bruce got to in that movie. It, it, gave, you, it gave you a look at the sort of extraordinary challenges and pain of like this one man's process and 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 that something so ugly could produce something so beautiful which was what chet's life right. was it was right there you look at this craggy face of this drug addict and you hear this angelic voice whether a little bit more crackly in the later years but we're using the music from his whole career and you and you're going oh my god what am I looking at? You know, there's this other otherworldly kind of feeling that you're getting from trying to pinpoint, you know, how exactly can I, you know, look at this subject and really get a real sense of it. I mean, we were also describing not just a person, but an era. We were evoking time and place and all of that because they approached the shoot that way. They, Bruce shoots anything that walks and talks, and he was doing that. But at the same time, most probably in the back of the head, he said, I want to create this scene as if it was happening in the 50s. And I want to create this as if it was like the jazz that, you know, I think this, this place should have been like, this, this bar or so whatever. And so, so I'm getting this material, which is supposed to speak to me. What can I do? Make a conventional film out of it? That would have been horrible. No, and by the time you and I got together, I would, I would like to think that I was able to that I was taking a, a similar approach that I was trying to, because we were working on a film that spanned, you know, 100 years, and I had this, like, treasure trove of old movies, like my great-grandfather had shot, like, extraordinary archival stuff, and we would try to do things that would also kind of do that thing, where it's like, okay, like, we're going to make... This section of the film is talking about the 20s. We're going to shoot it like it happened in the 20s. We're going to do this sound this way. mix, And that's what I was talking about earlier, this kind of layered storytelling and how you like buttress the structure. And, and the 
extraordinary opportunity we had to work that way because, you know, I have never actually been able to work that way since. And I think this is what Bruce had. Bruce self-finances his film. That was the one and only film that I could self-finance. So on your dime, you're able to indulge your every fantasy or what kind of artist you want to be until your dime runs out. Near the end, I had to start making compromises too. You know, and that was coming back to Post Factory. We're running Post Factory and it, that was one of the peaks of Post Factory and the financial success and what was going on as a young editing company and being a young Turk in the post-production business gave me this freedom to sort of write my own ticket. And when I initially started Post Factory, or when I, after that first advent, that first year and I was sort of getting into it, I remember I met with a friend of mine who now, again, I don't want to be a name driver, so I'll just say a very successful guy, runs one of the main networks that we all watch on cable TV. And uh, I was telling him, you know, yeah, I think if I, I don't think I, I don't think I can go to Hollywood. I, that doesn't seem like the right culture for me. And uh, I don't, I don't know about going back to music videos, but maybe if I do this editing thing and I make enough money, I can like carve out enough time to kind of do my own thing. And really like before 9-11, that was what we were able to do. I mean, Post Factory was like going like gangbusters. Angela and I were able to lock ourselves in an editing room. I mean, that was... And when we were there, that was, we had Joel and Ethan in one room. We had Al Pacino in another room with Susie Almiger, right? We had Bruce Springsteen with our friend Tom Zimney in another room. I mean, but nobody knew it because we were in this shitty loft on the end of the West Village. You'd come up, you'd think you were going to some kind of like garbagey, like industrial building. And then you come into this little sort of gem of a, you know, a 3,000 foot post-production facility, which essentially meant just a bunch of avids. We didn't even have shared storage. Everybody had their own like drives at that point. You, I couldn't even afford, even though we were doing well, you know, I couldn't afford to, or I didn't want to spend the money on the shared storage. I wanted to just, you know, spend the money on the film because we were still shooting film, right? And that time we were still, we were shooting film and converting it to a digital medium. And we, even when we, and even when we finished the film, this is even before the DI process, when we finished the film, we did a photochemical finish and that's also how the business has changed now it's like you were talking earlier about like hey in new york and in the 70s and people stayed in new york you can't do that anymore like it's not a business like yes there's an element of there's certain new york filmmakers that want to stay away from the studio or the one who could do their own thing but it's such a global business and it sort of reaches intercontinentally across everything and to make and making films now Technology hasn't made it any cheaper. It's just as expensive to make films. Sadly, the independent distributors think that the independent filmmakers can make films for cheaper, so they're paying less than they did back in the day when I started. It's harder to, to recoup when you make an indie film. But, uh, you know, it's, it's still just as expensive to hire an editor for a year. You want to hire Angelo for a year? That's not inexpensive I mean it's not the most expensive but we would hope that it wouldn't be but but, <laughs> but you know it's it's it, it, so the the economics don't make it possible for people to uh, kind of maintain that I think there's a couple filmmakers that are still trying to cling to that like thing but there's really just like you know a, less than a handful like everybody travels now everybody does whatever you're working for Netflix you're working for the studio you're working for for whoever you know if you want to work, you you go where the money is. Getting back to the 
other thing that we were talking about earlier about just the aesthetics and a film coming out, whether it be Nine Good Teeth or Let's Get Lost or something else or, or Chris Marker. I'm so glad you brought Chris Marker up. I didn't want to just say that when I was making the reference to phone, my phone would ring and I'd get all these offers, but I want you to make a film just like you made before. It, there were times when, <laughs> this is self-aggrandizing, but I just wanted to finish off that thing, where people were actually imitating certain elements in Let's Get Lost, that feel or whatever. So I worked on the Patti Smith film, Dream of Life, which did not necessarily copy Let's Get Lost, but he was a, a photographer just like Bruce Weber was. He had a different, same, same sensibility. The material was up, and, and they were trying to put the film together, we shall say, in this kind of broad montage style, or at least elements in the film, having this style of montage and layering of sound and image. And they called me. And so when I saw it, you know, I realized why they called me, because there were certain similarities. And the same thing with uh, the film that I did a couple of years ago about Harry Dean Stanton, the actor partly fiction, Harry Dean Stanton, partly fiction. Uh, the woman director, Sophie Huber, she and her DP were trying to copy the certain kind of feel and photography in color, most of it, that uh, Let's Get Lost had. So this whole new generational change is that while all this technology is changing, what was allowable in the documentary genre was beginning to shift. And you had all these younger people saying, why are you telling me that I can't do it? Why, you, you know, I'm seeing it a different way. And then being influenced by 30 odd years of this progression of different kind of documentary films. I'm not saying there weren't good fiction films being made during those oh, 30 years talk, either. We could spend a few hours talking about, talk about it, yeah. But I'm just saying that these things were, you know, parallel movements that were going on at the same time, the technology part, the aesthetics part, the young people part, that, you know, you, you, it was hard and hard to tell them because they had the tools. They can go out and shoot. You couldn't tell them they can't go to shoot because they go out in the field and shoot all they wanted and come back with stuff that you go, that's amazing or whatever. So there was a whole new generation where they could take those kind of chances because there were the investment of the money at particular junctures was not as great. Well, certainly you can, look, in, in, in documentary filmmaking, first of all, is it's for the love of, of, the, of the work. It is not for the money, you know, and I told you I was at the Documentary Awards two weeks ago. It's, you know, that's, every single person in that room has a day job, just about, you know what I mean? It's like, it ain't easy. And it's really like, yeah, you can go out and get a camera. You can shoot on your iPhone, for God's sakes. And it still comes back to, Mary, uh, Chet, Patty Smith, Dylan, like Edie, whoever it is, Kitty Genovese, right? It's story, right? If it's not a good story, nobody's gonna care. And, and you have to have, and especially in these character-driven stories, these characters are compelling on and off the screen. All the characters, right? If you sat in a bar with Chet Baker, I'm gonna bet your ass that you would be happy to sit in that bar for 10 hours and listen to him tell his story, right? But you know, he's, us, he's but that, Yeah, but that gives us the license because we sense at the interview, after we see the footage or whatever, that there's something there. There's a terrific film or terrific character study to be. And we're, we're given the license up here, mentally, intellectually, to say, 
okay, I grasp that part. What else can I bring to it? What else can I do to really take another step but into that can, inner world? But you can't. Before, there were all these boundaries about what was acceptable, what was this, what was that, even if you had a good subject. But the boundaries also let you take a bad subject and force a kind of interest to it, right? You could take a, a sort of dull subject, put it into conventional like boundaries, dolly it up a little bit, and, may, and if, if the character was somewhat less exciting than some of these other characters, you could still kind of create a, a film that might find an audience. You can't and I'm force... talking about documentaries. I know, I know, but you can't do the thing that you're talking about, that deeper, that you can't force that deeper dive you know, if, the, if the character... It in the material, if the, if the character at the interview, at the... at the interview, in the backstory, whatever it is. One of the problems that I'm having, you know, the film that I'm about to start, one of the problems that I'm having in sort of how to develop the spine of the movie is uh, the guy is like, nothing bad's happened to him in his life. Like everything, like he even says, and I've been watching, there's all this stock interview with him because he's a very famous scientist, the film that I'm working on. And he's just, you know, he talks about one success to the next and how lucky he's been. There's no tragedy in the guy's life. So like, where's the conflict? Where's the irony? Where's the, what's the, what's the, you know, it's not, like, sorry, like the uncle that he was named after dying in World War One, 120 years ago, that ain't going to make my, my film work, you know, so you got to, and, 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 it, and it's, it's kind of amazing, because, you, know, you, know, you know, you have to be, you know, careful about, you know, making sure that you're evaluating the material in a kind of way that is constructive, and you're not just taking the job or whatever and be part of it. Uh, in, in the film Lion King, again, an award winner and Oscar nominee, Al that was, yeah, Al Hirschfeld. It was a very simple material. She had been working on it for ten years. Made a little short. Uh, Susan Dreyfus, who is you know part of the uh, New York Times family, and something wasn't happening or whatever. Anyway, they got to me uh, at some point, but I didn't want to change the nature of that film. This was this wonderful old ninety-eight-year-old raconteur a guy who saw the change in the art world from the 20s to the zeros. And my, my point was not, not to make a subjective, you know, tear out your hair kind of portrait. I was just reacting to the, to the, to the effervescence and the, and the beauty of his drawings and his lines uh, that were in his drawings and just trying to stick with the nature of the material because that would be the honor that, that, that I could bring to it. That I, that I would bring whatever I could, but I was being aware that I was not going to change it from, you know, one thing that, you know, it wasn't to something that, you know, was not going to work. One of my big concerns was, you know, Angelo coming with this great suitcase of, like, filmmaking history, right, of, like, the, the titans of filmmaking. But as a young director, first-time director, because that was really my first big film all that has to go away you have to those you have to understand and you were also pretty brilliant about this you have to understand that those great filmmakers face the same struggles we were facing and in the editing room you get into the editing room and if it ain't on the page it ain't on the screen if it ain't on the camera and I don't care if you're Arthur Penn or Alex Halpern it's like that first day in the editing room that is the scared straight day 
or the, at least the first day on the first film. Maybe if you're Arthur Penn, by the time you're getting a Bonnie and Clyde, okay, you know, because you also knew how to do it right from the, get, from the first day on the set. But, you know, there was, there's a moment where you give it up, for me, from the co-creator, director point of view, and saying, like, okay, well, I'm at the start. Those guys had to start somewhere. I'm lucky that I'm working with somebody that was with those guys when they started. He had to start somewhere. How do we get going? Because at a certain point, it's not about looking in the rearview mirror at what happened. It's about looking forward about what you want to say and hoping that some of the pixie dust can kind of rub off onto you and that you can find the pixie dust. And also, you're a student of those things. So you're looking for these lessons and how it applies to your material. You're not trying to say... Okay, well, like you did this and I'm doing this and you did this and this, but they're really not related. It's like there's only so much that I could take out of, let's say, let's get lost and say, oh, well, you tried that. Let's try. Like one of the things we tried early on, um, which was applicable, was this idea um, in the very beginning of Nine Good Teeth. I had all these like different audio recordings and interviews and like wire recordings of Sicilian that like this wire recorder was in my grandmother's basement. And it was like, there was no real place to like, make them into a story or into a scene, but I loved this material. Like how, and, and Angelo came up with and then sort of started and then we kind of fine tuned it, this idea of a kind of like, almost like a, like a mashup tape. Like if you were using my kids kind of where you took like all this audio and kind of put it on like 40 or 50 different tracks and kind of just trimmed it out and edited it the right way. So you'd start with one conversation and pick up with another. And each night you can't really hear what she's saying or you sort of start to hear it. But it would kind of later on in the film, we'd like kind of pick it up again because then it became the Italian phrases. And then by the time Angela and I were almost done with our work, and I started to work with the composer with that same idea in mind. I was thinking about this island of Stromboli where my family came from and it being at the this sort of crossroads of the Mediterranean and the story that my grandmother would always tell about how the Phoenician sailors came there and this sailors and that sailors. So I said to Tees, I'm like, man, I want to have like Arab music. I want to have this music. I want to have like these different, I want to come up with some piece that has this kind of, both ancientness that you could have heard in Rome and you could hear now on that same island. And if you were listening to it now, it'd be like some old dude on a craggy rock wall playing his Jew's harp, uh, you know, like, or the sound of the wind through the cactus. What does that sound like? And I never would have had that instinct or that impetus if we hadn't done the first part. But it's different for the editor who is not, the, not only the grandson, but the filmmaker who has all this stuff that he's been carrying around for, for decades. We come into it at a particular point in time when it's pretty much all shot sometimes. Uh, and so we have to get into a mindset. So we come to it with whoever we are, as you were intimating in your original question, is that we're a walking, talking human with all these impulses, all these things that make up who we are. You know, like Chris Marker, you know, when I saw his film, you know, there's stills, there's this. I'm sure I incorporated that feeling, not the actual thing, and let's get lost. We carry all this stuff that all these little moments in an Anthony Mann Western with, with James Stewart about that outlaw who's the first time we'd ever seen psychologically whatever 
cowboys. You bring all this stuff, like, what does that mean to me? Oh, it sort of made me think about my father. So all these things that you're just accumulated inside your brain, inside your feelings, and coming up with, you know, a certain kind of identity, you're bringing this to the film. The other thing that you're trying to do, that the, that the director is trying to get you to do, it's like, like he's saying, I'm carrying around this kind of feeling inside my brain or inside my head, and you're trying to get the editor to, like, take that feeling and put it onto the film, which is a kind of absurd idea, right? I mean, the film, whether it's a piece of tape or a digital image or like in those days a piece of film, how do you get like a feeling to imprint on this piece of celluloid? And that's the real art and genius of editing and filmmaking when you can do it, when you can sit back as the author and look at it and say, my God, that moment captures what I'm feeling inside me but even more, when you can watch it and come to me and say, it made me feel like this, and you're reflecting back to me the thing that, was, that I was thinking about when I tried to make that moment. And that is the kind of like rarefied moment that you try and you work so hard and you can't overcut. It's like, it's a very, and you know, Angela and I, like we worked for a long time, but you also have to learn when to stop working right? Because you can just massage the crap out of a film and then it's just mush. But those are the things that you're wrestling with. And maybe that's our process. If you sat here with, you know, my friend Tom McCarthy who made Spotlight, I don't know if that's Tom's process. I don't know if that's what, but I would think that because Tom is a writer as well as a director, as well as an actor, that yes, there's a certain something that he's trying to He's seeing a situation a certain way before he gets to his screenplay, and then he's trying to, it's like he wants to convey a certain intangible to the audience. And, you know, when you're doing a narrative film, you're taking, you know, the difference, I think, and why it's in a way somewhat harder in a documentary film. I don't want to be pompous about this, but I think it's harder in a documentary film because the, the, the set pieces that you have to move with in a documentary film, you don't control them. It's like, what happens in front of you? You got this, and okay, now, okay, I can use some music, or I can cut it this way, or I can use this visual effect. When you're in a narrative, it's like, okay, I, the actor's doing this, the words say this, the lights are here, and I know I'm gonna use this piece of music later. Okay, I think I got it. And there's a blueprint. There's, a, there's much more of a blueprint. But, but even, you know, but yeah, but even... Uh, we don't want to make, we don't want to slight uh, those great... Uh, um, I'm not slighting fiction. Anybody. No, fiction editors in the sense that it's all hard work. It's just, they're different genres, if we call them that, and it's different. They have a blueprint. That script might have been written over and over again for 10 years, 20 years, who knows? how long they take. It's been gone over. They, this is the third director that they've hired, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a blueprint. Once you get the actors, it becomes something new. Once you get the footage in cutting room, it becomes the last rewrite. The so it's all different. Yeah, and the story the stories, stays the same. No, no, but the story, the, one of the favorite phrases of narrative producers is you rewrite the script three times. First you write the script, then you write it again on the set, and then you write it again in the editing room. Right? It's a famous kind of thing. Yeah. And the stories, I was going to say, the stories that you told me about Dee Dee, right? And how you guys, uh, um, Dee Dee Allen, Allen and, 
the methodology that Didi employed to kind of also, when you guys were working on narratives, to kind of create that moment or find that moment, which is what we were trying to do in documentary film, not dissimilar to, and I haven't heard any stories from Tim Squires, but I am a f appreciator of Tim's work and I am appreciator of Ang's movies. And you could understand that, and also Bob Altman's movies, that like Tim, I think, in working with those guys and how those directors create, not so much the blueprint, somewhat of a blueprint, but also a kind of process that like they are sculpting and finding. And it's a very, this is, you know, if we were, if we were artists 600 years ago, we'd have been sculptors or we'd have been painters. We'd have been like dabbing a little red or a little okra or something to, sculpting a scene in a narrative film with all the footage that you get and it's not that it's easy it's just different there is a blueprint of the overall structure of the film there can be all kinds of things that go wrong on a feature on a narrative feature film the, there might be a problem with one or two of the actors what do you do you get the material you might have to favor the actor who had the minor dialogue rather than the one whose scene it is but be balance it in a way that it's not obvious that you're playing the scene on this other guy because the other one is not doing their work. And, and so you're doing all this kind of stuff that is, is difficult, but you have an overall structure and blueprint. And within that, you know, you, you mold. In documentaries, they're shooting and reshooting, and then you you can shoot along the way. If you if you don't have an ending, you can shoot it later. If you don't have well, this, you can do that. that so so it's a, it's an evolving process. Now there are reshoots in fiction features also, but not to this extent. And that's one of the challenges is that you know you have to be aware of what the possibilities are. I had many feature film editors here in New York that when things got rough in the 80s and saw that I had done some good work with Let's Get Lost, just to use that as an example, they said, well, Ann, should I take a documentary? I said, there's no work. You might as well take it, you know, do it. And I would get these phone calls. How do you do this stuff? This is ridiculous. They don't know what they want. There's no script. What am I supposed to do? You know, so they so didn't you, have the capacity. And they were as good an editor as I am. Well, it's and like, it's like they being, just couldn't handle that without that structure. They couldn't handle. It's like being an improv actor. You know, there's some actors that they can improv and they can go, you know, and I've taken a lot of acting classes. You improv, you go off book, uh, you know, or off script. And some actors just can't, you know, it's like if it ain't this, this and this and they're great actors, you're still not going to get you're not going to get it. So. I think that's why you yeah, and I came yeah, together I well. When, when you were editing music videos, right, you basically, in, you know, you go out, you have a certain kind of, you might have like a treatment of what you're trying to get to, but it wasn't a very narrative, sometimes it was narrative. There were some directors that did that, but a lot of times it was like, okay, it's these things. You'd go out, you'd shoot as much coverage as you can. If you covered everything, then you'd burn the film on some other stuff. You'd get to the editing room, you'd start playing the track, and just dropping stuff in on the beats and like, oh, that looks cool. Oh, I hadn't thought of that before. Oh, let me drop a flash flame in there. Let me like, oh, let me use the rollout. I remember the first time we used the rollout, we're like, oh, that's totally different. Then all of a sudden everybody's using rollouts. Oh, let me, let me pull the film scanner back so I can see the perfs. You know, it's like you were kind of looking for any kind of like thing that would like 
visually kind of be different. So you learn to improv and how to combine things that in the sense that you were saying earlier, this sort of like quadratic roadmap of like structure that like, why would I, you know, you know, if you were talking to somebody 10 years before, well, no, why would I use the rollout? You can't use the rollout. That's garbage. I mean, I was lucky that I came into the film business when I did. Uh, you know, I was a pre-med major, believe it or not. And then I got ill and I had to think about what I really wanted to do with my life. And uh, there was no film school. And that was the only thing I was interested in. Uh, uh, so I majored in theater. So I got that background in. But I was lucky enough to come in. Uh, uh, graduate and come into the film business in the mid and late 60s uh, where things were happening all over the place. You know, Godard was wiping out and reintroducing all different kinds of editorial uh, uh, methods of montages, jump cuts and whatever. And other people had done similar kinds of things. But that was really flowering at that time. So I think th the people in the New York community, whether it be Didi Allen or Aramavakian, uh, um, and, and Carl Lerner, whatever, they were taking advantage of all this. And some of them gravitate toward it in a, in, in a very, very accepting kind of way. Others might have been more traditional and stayed away from it. But this was happening. And Didi was very, very different in the sense that it was a hard road for her as a woman and during that era uh, to progress into her career at a certain point. Then when it hit, everybody thought, yeah, she's been there always it was always easy no it was not and but she had this gene we shall call it a gene that uh, working with these New York directors who said hey kid you know like on um, odds against tomorrow whatever here's the film see what you can do with it that kind of thing where we didn't have a studio looking over our shoulders we didn't have to show cuts of scenes you know, or sequences you know every week and they, they took these chances, and that was some of the things that she gave me, which was, uh, you know, uh, combined with what I was learning from films themselves and film history, is that she would experiment, she would do sound and image and loud and soft and this and that and jump cuts and all this kind of stuff. She could do the other stuff. If you've seen Let's Get Lost, she could do that too. Uh, but. Uh, I felt like a certain kind of liberation there because you know I thought it was a little bit more cut and dry, and here was this person, you know, flipping, you know, pieces of film and marking stuff up, you know, like 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 I say, like a juggler, you know, you know, at that uh, synchronizer and and through that moviola, and I said, whoa, this is a little bit more complicated than what I'd seen at a film production company uh, that I had worked on pre previous to that, you know, where everything was pretty, you know, pretty straightforward. And it, that inspired me again. So you, those are the experiences that you just carry along. Am I going to be a, 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 an editor like Didi? No one could ever be. <laughs> but I can take whatever I'm given and whatever is in here and see what I can do with it. And that's when I really found that kind of freedom in the people that were still had worked under the studio system, were, but beginning to uh, break away from the constricts of. Of, of what was true. was a totally different human being to work with than anybody I'd worked with before. And I think you could have a sense of me and I'm sure there's, you know, I'm sure if you went out and like talked to people in the business, they'd say that I have a big personality, that I'm a, you know, that I have a presence, you know. When I was younger and I was less restrained, sometimes people would accuse me of being the person that could come into the room and suck all the air out of the room towards him, right? You know, um, maybe when we first got together, you know, 
I'd like to think I'm a little more self-aware and considerate of my fellow humans now. Um, but when you're young and you're a young Turk, it's a different kind of thing. And Angela was a very um, uh, refined, uh, cerebral, quiet gentleman, um, you know. And so it also took me a second to get into his groove and realize, like, you know, and I think that was the beginning of me kind of like changing my approach and learning how to work with other people in a different way because up to then you'd go shoot a music video with a band you had to almost be one of the band to kind of the kind of bands i was working with you kind of had to bully your way around to get what you wanted and then you go to the editing room by yourself there was nobody you didn't have to answer to anybody you just had to answer to the record company deliver on time and create a good product well now i didn't feel like i had to answer to angela but i certainly felt a certain a definite respect and a definite i wanted to be able to I understood pretty quickly in the beginning of our process that it was not going to be a short process. You cut a music video in a week, two weeks, three weeks would be a lot. You know, it's really like 10 days, you're done. Um, and I understood we were going to be together for a long while in a small room, like about this size, sitting next to each other. Angela, first few weeks, you'd be like, oh, you can go and come back. You know, like, well, go, go run, do some post-factory thing and I'll show you. I was like, no, 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 I'm, I got to sit here. Like, I'm... This is me being a filmmaker. Like I sat right at the table next to him, which I think, you know, narrative editors, that kind of would annoy them. But well, you're in separate parts of the process. Yeah, but, but, but you know, I was also still thought of myself as an editor, you know, maybe I was gonna be the co-editor. That wasn't what was going on, but that was how I kind of came into it. And we, so we learned to get into each other's groove. And I learned right away, like, okay, we spent like eight weeks just sitting there watching the stuff in a way that I hadn't even really watched it, making copious notes on legal pads. You see his notes right there, and that's what Angelo does. And like, we were logging 100 hours of material to figure out how we were gonna attack it. We weren't gonna, I mean, we, maybe we looked at one of my early cuts, but there was no cut to start with. So after about eight weeks, you know, it started, we'd, it started to loosen up a little bit, and we started to understand each other. And you know, I would say like, you know, we just got each other, and Angelo, you know, we worked till like 11 o'clock at night sometimes. We were working crazy hours and like Karen was like, what's going on? Like I had little kids at home and she thought I was having an affair for God's sakes. And I think it was a kind of cerebral affair. And it was like, you know, I was also learning. I was a student, you know, that was for me also. And, you so know, was I. Yeah, we, we all were learning are. from each other. And it was like this opportunity to be like, oh, like I don't have to worry that he's imposing something on me. He's trying to learn something from me. I'm trying to learn something from him. And that imposing thing, I want to just clarify. Like I was also a little frightened of it because that's a very typical thing that happens with DPs, right? Like you work with a DP for a short amount of time. DP is, he's like the other king on the set, right? It's a, sometimes it becomes a, a, a contest between the DP and the director. And so I've had a hard time with DPs because I have a very strong visual sense. I've shot a lot of my own stuff. I could have been a DP at one time and not been a director. Um, but that just, it, I didn't want to, you know, I'm too, I'm too narcissistic to want to work on other people's stuff. And I mean that in a sort of self-reflective understanding of it's like, whatever's in here, it's like, I couldn't, like I used to edit for other people for a while and then I would just feel like, somehow distraught that I had given part of my internal creativity to somebody else for some BS toy commercial. Like I edited crap too. I wasn't editing. I wasn't getting the chance to edit, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like I wasn't working with people like Bruce Weber. I was working with some, you know, like low rent 
agent, agency people. Um, so for us, we, we found our way and we developed our relationship and we worked. And we also had another person in the room with us. She shouldn't be completely overlooked. Angela's assistant, Laura Congleton, was certainly part of the process and certainly helped bind us together. Because every editor has a fantastic assistant and that assistant is a kind of protector of the editor. And it took, I think, Laura a good three or four months before she realized I wasn't going to be some kind of over-demanding, difficult person that was somehow going to damage Angelo. And it, the editor-director relationship can be very fragile. When you say, the, and, and this much I will say about, you know, I said it's like a psychiatrist's office, right? When he comes in the room, stays in the room. But it's a very fragile exchange of ideas and creative process. And you have to be completely open and completely giving to it and so you're exposed. And so the more I would expose, the more Angela would expose. And then we were just both exposed trying to make a good movie. And that's why you can't have people invade the process. You, you know, then you're protecting the movie like your child, right? And it's your child. It exists between you and... And I always wonder like how it works where there's teams, right? If you have like on some big movies, they got two editors. I'm like, I think that's where the yeah, blueprint. The on li- on but ranks. I think that's where the blueprint thing <laughs> happens more. That's when you're in the narrative world, like you know, that's where it's because you. I don't think you could have that same kind of experience. I mean, if you and I were doing a narrative, I think we'd have the same kind of experience. But I don't think when you're doing studio pictures and you're like, okay, now I'm doing this movie for Fox, and like here's the five editors that you get to choose from. It's also a different process, right? It's like the studio gives you the studio approved list. And if your guy or your woman is on the list, okay. But if they're not, you know, you have to fight for it. And that's, and we didn't have any of that bullshit. So that also took a lot out of it. And we didn't have anybody breathing down us like, hey, you know, where do we need to see the reels? Then later on, as the BBC got into it and some other like potential buyers, you know, and Angela was very good at, um, helping to calm me down about certain things and kind of bring his experience to bear. You know, like HBO at one point offered us five times more money for the movie than they eventually paid. I think it was five. I think they offered, I don't want to say the figure, but if it wasn't five, it was like three times. I mean, it was a lot more money if we would give them the film and let them cut it down to a short documentary film. Uh, And we sort of thought about it. And this was after 9-11 and now I was hurting for money. And Angela was like, you should do it. And I was like, I'm not going to do this. We've been working on this film for like almost 15 months now. Like, you know what? The, the, the next 30,000 isn't going to hurt the last, isn't going to help the last 600 I already spent, you know? And uh, so we didn't do it. And then, so we wound up getting less money, but I had director's cut. It's like I bought my director's cut, and I had been, which I had been holding on to the whole time. And after the film premiered at Tribeca, uh, Sheila Nevins called me up and she left me a voicemail. She said, and she was on the jury and she had recused herself from the jury, but she said, I'm so glad you didn't let me recut the movie. And I thought that was amazing uh, on Sheila's part. Yeah, no, she called me and left me a message and like, yeah, you made the right decision to hold on to your movie the way it was, you know, and we sold it to HBO. We didn't get as much, but that's sort of the point of documentary filmmaking. You're not making it. I tell everybody, if you're making a doc, you're not making it for the payday. Even the doc I'm starting now, but I haven't made a documentary film in 16 years when we finished Nine Good Teeth. I'm about to start another documentary film. I'm not doing it for the money. I'm doing it because I found a subject that somehow is speaking to me. 
and it's not a relation and it's a thing and Andrew and I are just starting to talk about what will this film be like um, and will we work on it together again see he doesn't realize how I got a whole plan so we'll talk about it stay tuned for the next episode of frame by frame when we'll hear the story of the birth and evolution of New York's sound one as it became the nexus of the New York film industry from 1968 to 2011 Guests include founder Alicia Birnbaum, re-recording mixers Mel Zelniker, Tom Fleischman, Lee Dichter, and Dominic Tavella, sound editor Chick Ciccolini, picture editor Andy Monsheen, music editor Missy Cohen, ADR editor Michael Jacoby and Deborah Wallach, post-production supervisor Susan Lazarus, and facilities manager Jay Rubin, to name but a few. I'm your host, Isabel Siderni, and this is Frame by Frame.